There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Readers recommend. With us in the studio, we are joined by freelance writer and bookworm Mohammed Al Khan. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So I have given you a book to review and either recommend or not recommend, depending on how you found it, the latest book by Marlon James, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. First things first, I know they say not to judge a book by its cover, but it is a beautiful it cover. Is absolutely a gorgeous cover. Um, but you said recommend or not recommend. It's both. It's, it's really both. both. Um, it depends on your taste and your sensibilities, because this book will assault it in every side of uh, your sensibilities. An assault on the senses? Yes. Okay. Very much so. It's really interesting. First of all, let's look at the kind of genre this is, which I gather is slightly hard to define. But Marlon James, I think a lot of people, they hear that he's writing a new book. They think, okay, great. I really enjoyed A Brief History of Seven Killings. That book is very different to this one. He's not sticking with the same genre or scope at all. So if anybody is unfamiliar with A Brief History of Seven Killings, it um, won the Man Booker Prize. It is the third novel by Marlon James, and it spans several decades and explores the attempted assassination of Bob Marley in Jamaica in 1976 and its aftermath. And that is not what this is about in any way, shape or form, is it? Not at all. So this is fantasy. Yes, it is complete fantasy. It is based in a fictional ancient Africa. Um, And (laughs) the way he described it is he did two years of research in mythology and folklore, African folklore and mythology, um, except, you know, his assistant Jeff did that for him. Um, but yeah, it took two years of research, in-depth research for him to come up with this, you know, he did the world building, he did everything, which is about where it ends with similarities with Game of Thrones. Yeah, so that's the interesting thing that comes up. Um, there was a great interview, we're going to play a few excerpts from it later on in the show, um, a great interview that he did on Late Night with Seth Meyers, and something that comes up again and again, because he actually ended up telling somebody and it spread to the entire media, he said, oh, I'm writing an African He version. actually told someone at the show, at Seth Meyers' show, yeah. and it spread. And it completely spread, he said he was writing mm-hmm. an African version of Game of Thrones. And then George R. R. Martin wanted to actually meet him, didn't he? he they did meet and um, quickly realized that's not what he's doing. And he asked George R. R. Martin for a blurb for his book, and he didn't get one. <laughs> but I mean, he's also sorry. He's also said too that uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was what inspired it, him. It is a huge inspiration for him. Yes. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also him reading the Lord of the Rings and not finding his own voice in it, right, right, and right. not finding a place for you know people of different backgrounds and different cultures to be hobbits to be elves or anything like that it was very westernized it was yes, very that's so true so he's going to make his own different, yeah so very he, different he was world. looking for a world where he could fit people like him in so th- that's one of the most interesting things that he talks about in that interview before i get on to that and we talk about um african versus western storytelling which is a great conversation can you take us through the basic plot or at least a few key characters as best you can because i know that it is convoluted and that is putting it lightly (laughs) so the main thing about the book is you have to realize it is not in linear storytelling lovely yeah it's not in chronological order um it jumps around the idea is basically you have your main uh character who's called tracker who's basically a hunter he finds things for people um he finds people for people 
um, and he's imprisoned, accused of murdering a child. And the, the entire book is him telling his story to his inquisitor. And so he jumps around, um, and it is his version of the story. That's the main theme of the book is about truth. Can you trust what Tracker is saying? So Marlon James is basically doing his own version with the roots of African storytelling of the unreliable narrator. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, and it, it's, he said that uh, the idea came from someone, from the director of the TV show The Affair, which is done that way. I haven't watched the show, so we'll know. Well, neither has he. Yeah, neither has he. But it is very Kurosawa-like in like Rashomon, where you have a trial and you bring the witnesses in and you get each version of the same story from those witnesses. And this is a trilogy. So the first book is Tracker. The next two are going to be two separate characters. So it's going to be told from their point of view. Um, but anyway, so as it goes on, you, you first get introduced to Tracker. You get to see his uh, rise into adulthood, his experiences. And it is very graphic. It is very detailed. Um, so if that's not something that... Exactly. If you can't handle that, I would avoid this book okay. completely. And it, it feels like it should be something you can read easily, but it's not. It takes a long time to get through this book. You need to go back over it and over it again. I think a couple of things that you just mentioned there in terms of like the graphic nature of it and the mm -hmm. fact that you need to return to it again and again and that there's a lot to sift through is something that Marlon James does, you know, that it has in common with A Brief History of Seven Killings. It may be a completely different story. It may be a completely different genre. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's still Marlon James cramming a lot of very interesting subject matter, but in ways that he doesn't make it easy for the reader, does he? No, not at all. And it does cover a lot of subjects from, you know, um, there's a lot of violence in there, but then there's a lot of cultural aspects. African um, culture and stuff is brought in uh, with things, uh, you know, even the, the first story where he leaves his dad's house and he goes and he finds his uncle's village. Um, and they talk about, uh, you know, upbringing and how kids are gone into adulthood in their sense of it is that a boy is born with a piece of woman in him and when he turns into a man that must be removed and the same thing is true for the woman um, and so it, it doesn't make it okay but you get to see their point of view and that's what marlon james likes to do a lot in this book here he is actually on late night with seth myers talking about african versus western storytelling which is a really important part of his telling of the story but it's in, it was hugely influential. She was, it was a director and she was talking to me about it and I was saying, this is a great idea for a TV show. And I was like, forget the TV show. It's a great idea for a trilogy. Um, because in a, in a lot of African storytelling, unlike just storytelling in the West, it's the trickster who's telling a story. So you already know you can't quite believe it. So if I put out three books, which is three different characters telling the same story, by the way, I'm not going to tell the reader which one to believe. They're going to have to choose after a few years. I like the fact that he's not giving anything away and that the reader's going to have to choose in a few years who's telling the truth. Yeah, yeah. And um, and that's very much like he's being compared to um, Quentin Tarantino in some ways in that case and his violence and so on. Do you find that on a book like this with so much going on, and as he said to the trickster telling the story, that should you maybe do one read through it 
And then you sort of come back and start looking at these sort of parallel stories that are going on together. Because sometimes I find that in a book where by the first read, I'm not really sure where it's going. With an easier story, I would say that's possible. <laughs> but with this one... It's even too complicated I mean, to start. It's, it's it? not about the com- complexity. It's mm-hmm. about the, you know, the graphicness, the imagery in there and everything. Can you actually go through it again? Uh-huh. Okay. That's, uh, that's even tougher, that one. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so but I, it's also something I enjoy with this. The, the thing that strikes me about it as well is his inspiration is really interesting when he's talking about actually writing the book. So we mentioned that he was inspired by this TV show, The Affair, but he mm-hmm. had never actually watched it. But I think it was it was more the, the way the story was told. Someone yes. was telling him about the fact that it switched between points of view or right. something. So is that where it came, comes from? It, it is just that storytelling aspect of the of the TV show that he was interested in. And he found out that that's how old African storytelling is like. They do it from different points of view and they never give you the answer. It's up to you to judge and decide which one you choose to be true. And in traditional stories, it's often the trickster who's, yes. who's telling the story, yeah. which immediately made me think of... Loki telling the the story of the Avengers instead of Thor. But that is a digression entirely. That would be an interesting comic book. Do you think he relies on African myths and, you know, folklore? He brings some of that alive? He brings a lot of that that in here. You know, even from the the spider god Anansi comes into it. You've got lycanthropy. You've got witches and sorcery and everything in there. And you question whether is this real or is it just yes. his view of what the world is like? He believes in these things and so he says them. Because probably typically in storytelling, I think all of the myths are told almost one by one. Mm. And it sounds like he's got the cast of characters that arrived to create this story. He does. He does have a party that he goes on search. So eventually he is given the quest to find a boy that's been missing for three years, which is a daunting task, even for someone who, as they describe it, has a nose. He can smell people miles and miles away, and that's this how he tracker. tracks them. Yeah, yes, tracker, as a tracker. Yeah. Um, and so he does team up with Leopard, who is a shapeshifter who shapeshifts between human and leopard. Um, as well as a witch and some other people. And they go on this quest to track this boy and they meet a lot of interesting people. And also the the overarching story between the North and South countries and all that political intrigue is in there. The way you described it then with this cast of characters on this quest, it just immediately made me think of a really dark, twisted version of The Wizard of Oz, which is already fairly twisted. Well, yeah, it is actually. That, that's an interesting way to look at it. It is. Yeah, you've got the leopard instead of the lion. But I'm not sure about the tin man and the scarecrow. <laughs> no, I took the analogy too far. Let's leave it there. Um, a couple of people have been saying, and you mentioned Lord of the Rings as an inspiration for Marlon James. But there was one reviewer that really stands out in my mind who said that the Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings as you know, very Western fantasy stories that are common reference particularly now especially game of thrones is Mm -hmm. so popular they keep coming up again and again as comparisons as as how you compare a work of fantasy and i've seen it with a lot of fantasy books now it's like okay if you like game of thrones you'll like this it's kind of the the point that we compare there's the comparison i I would actually but it doesn't make sense for this apparently no i don't think it makes sense i i see where the lord of the rings side of it can come into it but I would compare it more to Nedio Corafor's work with Binti. Binti series is beautiful and it does take place again in, you know, African 
uh, culture and so on. So I, I would say thematically it fits more into those types of books. Yeah, uh, somebody actually mentioned that it's more, it's closer to say Tony Morrison meets Kafka's Metamorphosis than you know Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it it is the the, the I would say it, it leaves. Game of Thrones immediately after world building. That's exactly. it. <laughs> so it's just a reference. Yeah. When we look at the concept of shape shifting and particularly the the leopard, that's very much part of African mythology mm-hmm. and sort of old African religion and indeed in many mythological stories from around the world. This is something that shows up. How does he use this to the advantage oh, it, of it's, it's it's blended into the story. Um he, as one it's does, not as like a yeah, it's it's not like <laughs> You know, he's telling these folklore stories. Oh, no, he comes across these characters. He yes, meets yes. them. Um, he, you know, he, he has dialogues with them and sometimes fights with them and so on. But um, it, they are blended very well into the story. So if you if you like, um, I suppose, because you mentioned Quentin Tarantino earlier, a good gauge for this would be if you like Tarantino's films and you're okay with that level of like, graphic violence, then okay, go ahead and pick up this book, especially if you liked the tone of Marlon's previous book. But it is fantasy, so just go in with open eyes is what you're saying. I would say also expect a little more than just Quentin Tarantino style. Beyond, okay. (laughs) What's also interesting about Marlon is he's great in interviews and we talked a little bit earlier about his experience on Late Night with Seth Meyers and some of the things that came up in terms of writing in the African storytelling tradition where the trickster ends up telling the story more often. And, And that's the great thing about Black Leopard, Red Wolf is you don't really know who to trust yet and it's the first of a planned trilogy. So we won't really know until the end who's telling the truth here he is talking about the amount of research that it takes from idea to writing for your information before you listen to this you need to know that jeff is his assistant who does all his research i was researching for two years meaning jeff was researching for two years um before i even wrote wrote um oh because i didn't know whose story it was Mm -hmm. and usually this is what happens when with stories for me i am usually Talking to somebody, usually um, a female friend. I get all my ideas from women. Um, Not a bad way to go. No, oh, yeah. and they'll say something. I go, "That's it." And uh, and when um, you know, when my friend said, um, you know, the, the the whole idea about the affair, and I go, "That was it." Uh, but until then, I didn't know. And uh, I sat around in my office for a good year, and the idea came the week before school started. So. Uh, I was like, great, I can write the book. No, I got to teach. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we literally just spoke about the fact that you can't really compare this to Game of Thrones. However, you can in one aspect. Yes. Have a listen to this. The person who tells book two is kind of the villain of book one. Okay. So people are already having these emotional attachments to characters. I'm like, you might regret that. So, yeah, don't get emotionally attached to these characters. That is one thing that he does like George R. R. Martin, is do not get attached. These stories don't end well. Okay. Um, so that is our kind of book that we've given you to recommend or not. Um, and I think you have a couple of others. So if this doesn't sound, if Black Leopard, Red Wolf doesn't sound like the kind of book for you, what else do you have that might be? Well, also, if it does sound like the book for you, this is a bit of a mental palate cleanser. After that book, I like that. Uh, and it on. is uh, *Bridge of Birds* by Barry Hewart. Um, it is, in the same sense, this is a book about uh, a fictional ancient China, 
Uh, it was uh, written in 1984, and it won the uh, World Fiction Award for 1985. Um, it is just, it was one of the most fun books I ever read. I just enjoyed it, had a lot of fun reading it. It's part of a trilogy, and the trilogy is called The Chronicles of Master Lee and Number 10 Ox. Um, and it basically follows a character called Number 10 Ox, who is the narrator of the story. Um, and he's just a regular uh, village boy who's the 10th child who happens to be quite strong, and so they refer to him as Number 10 Ox. And their little village uh, where they basically farm silkworms and they uh, sell silk um, is basically an illness falls on the children there. And Number 10 Ox is sent out to find a sage to find a cure for this curse. Um, and eventually he finds Master Lee and they go on this huge adventure to try and figure out everything that happens. Um, and Barry Hewart actually uh, has done a lot of uh, research in uh, Chinese, specifically Chinese culture, Chinese uh, folklore and stuff when he put this book together. Um, unfortunately, it was meant to be seven books and only made it to three. So at the end of the trilogy, are we just are we left with so many unanswered questions because it was meant to be seven books instead of three? Um, I wouldn't. I I don't know it, because they are kind of standalone stories. Each one has its own kind of. It is so. It, it's a fancy book, but also a kind of detective mystery book. So they do solve the crime or the the mystery in each book. So you're not kind of left hanging. Is there a sense of continuity from one to the other? Um. Not so much. It okay. is they are kind of standalone stories, nice. so you could go. But the the same characters are in there, yes. Master Lee and Number Ten Ox, and they are your kind of uh, you know Stan and Laurel kind of straight face, and <laughs> nice. uh, you know, and, and you see you 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 see this whole story through the eyes of the naive Number Ten Ox as he goes across China to in all kinds of fantasy and fantastical places that they go to to try and find this cure. Um, uh, to save the children of their village. When did you come across this book? Where did you find it? By accident, about 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I came across it. discovered some of the best books by accident. Yeah, it was by complete accident uh, that I just came across this. And it has, if you look online these days, it has been recommended in so many various different genres. Um, but it is just a delight to read. Uh, and... <laughs> One of the lines I like in here that describe the the culture there is uh, the abbot of the village say says that the health of a village is determined by that the the people must have a man that they truly all hate, and we were blessed with two of them. <laughs> it's a and great so line. yeah, it's a great line, and it's basically referring to the pawnbroker and the salesman. Uh, that ba take all the village's money and uh, basically run their businesses. Remind us of the title of this again. And it is Bridge of Birds by Barry Hewart. Is and this the kind of thing that I would like if I like fantasy and also if I don't like fantasy? Yes, uh, I think definitely. Um, it is definitely a fantasy. It has a lot of, uh, you know, fantastical creatures. But also, if you like the style of storytelling... Um, that is Oriental-based, where, you know, you get a lot of mysticism in there. Um, uh, and, you know, just by describing his village, uh, his village sits next to a part of the Great Wall that is separate and not connected to the Great Wall. Because the general who built that section 
had a dream that he was taken to heaven and the emperor of heaven changed the location of the wall for him and he couldn't say no. And so he was tried for treason. So then he changed this story into, well, no, one day a dragon came by and I, I built the wall perfectly where it's supposed to be and this dragon came by and he slept on the wall and shifted it. What is the kind of final book that you want to recommend for us? It involves Zen and motorcycles. Um, yes, but if you learn anything about Zen or maintaining motorcycles, it is purely by accident. Um, it's a misleading called, title. Yeah, it's called The Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Piercig. Um, and this was written back in the 70s. And uh, like, like you said, everybody had a copy of this. And I was given a copy when I went off to college. It's my dad's favorite book, and he gave me a copy to read um, when I went to college. And it is one of those books that's become a classic because you'd read it every few years or so. And every time you read it, you find something new in it because it's you, the reader, who has changed. Your opinion has changed. Is, this, is it fiction or nonfiction? It is fiction. Um, it's a fictionalized autobiography about a road trip he did with his son and a couple of friends from Minneapolis, Minnesota, down to San Francisco, California, um, on a couple of motorcycles. Uh, and it looks at, um, it, it does a lot of symbolism in the way of the character of uh, John Sutherland, who's his friend driving with him, uh, as opposed to the narrator himself. Um, and it, John is more of a fly-by-the-pants uh, kind of guy, seat-of-your-pants kind of guy. And he's he doesn't really care, but he has a brand-new bike. He likes to kind of see the world as it is. He doesn't care really much about the bike itself. Um, and whenever he does have any issues with it, he goes to the nearest mechanic to get it sorted out. While you have the narrator who's got this very old bike that he cares for himself, and he takes it apart, and he knows all the little bits and pieces about it. So you have this juxtaposition on these two viewpoints. And at the beginning, you know, he sees that John's way is the wrong way. But as you go through the story, he begins to appreciate John's point of view of how things are. How old is this book now? Because I know back in the day in college, this was a book you sort of felt hip and trendy if you were reading and if you were hanging up to it. And I do know that uh, we, it was almost a rite of passage. We all read it. Um, I can't quite remember parts of it, but I, as you say, should pick it up again and I'll have a whole new attitude exactly, towards it. Exactly, yeah. Uh, 1974 is when it was yeah. out. Yeah. Um, and it stood the test of time, I it think. Has. It's still interesting. It has very much so. And like I said, the title is very misleading. <laughs> Everybody looks at the title. When they ask me, what are you reading? I'm reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And I just get this strange look. I'm, I'm not like, surprised. Okay. <laughs> and they walk away. I would love to know. I'd love to do a special feature on how many people picked this up thinking that they were going to be able to repair their motorcycles or find Zen <laughs> and then discovered, actually, no, this is completely useless for me and my purposes. It actually looks a lot about value and quality yes. in things. Um, and it looks at a piece of art is worthless without the observer. And it is that quality between the two things that it, that it talks about. And at that time, I think it was one of those great reflective books that, mm -hmm. you know, we were all learning something from. Malcolm Taylor would know probably all about this book, I'm convinced. <laughs> so is it a bundle? I was going to say, is it a bunch of thoughts? Is it a bundle of philosophy and it ideas very philosophical in a road trip? Yes. Um, it is basically the stories that he tells his son 
along the way, and the stories have um, basically teachings in them. Shitakos, uh, I think, is what he calls them. Uh, Gosh, the it's stories. so long since I've read it. Yes. Yeah. Now, now you've got me curious again. <laughs> I'm going to have to pick it up. Uh, but you've got all these stories, and they cover things like Plato and Kant and all these you know, huge philosophies in a simpler version because it, it's him talking to his uh, 17-year-old son at the time uh, and trying to get these um, lessons across. Uh, but it is, uh, like I said, every time you read it, your point of view has changed. You have evolved as a person, and so the book is different. So the experience is different. This is the kind of book that you return to again yes. and again. Yeah, I, every few years, um, every five years or so, I'd give it another go. Yeah, no, no, I'm definitely, it's, it's on the list now because uh, I haven't even thought about it for so many years. But I was quite excited to see it on the list here today. So what kind of reader would you recommend this for? Um... A lot of people, like I said, my dad gave it to me when I went to college. So people uh, searching, you know, coming across new things and wanting to understand uh, their own psychology, their own uh, philosophy, uh, people, you know, moving to new places that, you, you know, want to see, uh, you know, want to understand, you know, what it means to them that they've, they've coming across changes and things like that. That's what I w- who I would recommend this book to. But just about anyone who's interested in philosophy uh, would enjoy this book. It, it is interesting to look back at books from, say, 1970s, particularly books like this that are about philosophy, because I feel like there are some things that are eternal and, and ring true no matter you know what generation we're from. But I do find that every now and then there are there are books that are completely dated by the way society has become because of mm. social media and things like that. Mm. And I think it's interesting that you say that it still stands the test of time, despite how different we have become since you first read the book. Uh, yeah, and it's mostly because of the reader. Uh, you have evolved. And so it is, it is your viewpoint that you come, because you come across these stories and you take from them what you will. You know, he doesn't force the lesson upon you. Um, and so that what you take from each story changes over the years or when you, you know, as you evolve mentally and as you learn new things and as you find value in new things that you didn't find when you were 20 or when you were 25 or whatever. Um, you know, now you, ha- you see great value in things that you didn't even think about back then. Um, and so when you read the book, you, you have a different point of view. We've spoken about Black Leopard, Red Wolf by Marlon James, Bridge of Birds by Barry Hugot. Thank you so much for holding that up and showing it to me. You could see me drawing a blank immediately. And Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. Yes. Okay. Um, Etna, very briefly, while we have a couple of seconds, I mean, we've spoken about this lovely idea of books that evolve with you. Is there a book that you return to again and again that somehow changes as, as you evolve as well? Um, I'm not great at rereading books, actually, and I haven't reread a book for a while. But um, I always have a few on the go. I probably have about four books at any time on the go. Now, of course, you'll have me thinking what books, because I'm sure I have read, reread books over the years. But uh, that one's definitely on my list. Um, at the minute, I'm actually, I've just finished reading a book called The Lilac Girls by a woman called Martha Hall Kelly. And it's a fascinating book about the occupation in Poland, but it's more a story of a New York socialite who actually finds these Polish women. And it's just a gorgeous story. I mean, it's, it's you know, it brings in history in terms of what happened in Germany and Poland under occupation. And um, 
lovely, lovely book on that. And then I'm reading a book on Saudi um, by Dr. Ellen Wald, which is almost a very contemporary look at what's going on in Saudi from early history. And I have just started um, my story by Sheikh Mohammed. I bought this, um, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum. Um, I bought this at the book fair. I just started it because I had heard somebody talking about it. So I'm looking forward to reading that. That'll keep me going for at least a week. Etna's recommendations there. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.